<laughs> Hello everybody. So today we're going to talk about the free energy principle and how it relates to psychedelics, which is a very, very exciting topic. There's a lot of excitement, I think, in the academic community about this topic. Uh, I've got to say, I'm going to present three completely new ideas. Uh, well, two of them have been kind of like talked about in various QRI uh, uh, articles as well as videos. Uh, there's one completely new one. But uh, in either case, uh, these ideas, um, you know, like is, they're not being talked about in, in the academic literature. We intend to, to publish them and, and run simulations. But for, in the meantime, it's just like very exciting, kind of like these new perspectives on how psychedelics and the free energy principle relate to each other. Um, and as, you know, kind of the North Star of this conversation, we will have the uh, basically the goal of explaining Indra's net in terms of the free energy principle, which I think it's actually possible. So, <laughs> so let's get to it. So first, the quality of the day is Indra's net. So, you know, it is said in, in various uh, yeah, Eastern, Eastern philosophies that, uh, you know, Indra, this very powerful god, basically has this net uh, hanging on kind of like the ceiling and you know one of the palaces in the in the realms of the gods and uh you know each of the nodes of the net is a you know multi-dimensional gem uh, this beautiful beautiful gem and the net is infinite it's completely infinite and what happens is that each of those gems will contain a reflection a tiny reflection of every other gem and then within the reflection and of every other gem you will find an even tinier reflection of every other gem and so on ad infinitum. You know, I mean, of course, if this was physically realized, it would be a limit, you know, because, you know, uh, photons are quantized ultimately, right? So there's not going to be like infinite resolution <laughs> when you observe it and, and you try to find kind of the world in, in a grain of sand, so to speak. Um, but, uh, but yeah, it's a, a very interesting and, and powerful metaphor. And, um, you know, it's used methodologically to kind of like talk about the interdependence of everything on everything else uh kind of in buddhism and, and even hinduism and um and that's a powerful kind of like vision and like a, like imagine you know if, if you assume that that's the case that you know like everything in the world actually stands in kind of an indra internet relationship to everything else and everything implies each other like even like a piece of trash or like a piece of i don't know this foam i don't know it was a random thing that uh came in, in a package of essential oils. Like this is interdependent with absolutely everything else. Uh, and more so, you know, this is the final product of its backwards light cone, which, you know, contains such a huge amount of, uh, you know, every, like the cosmic background radiation. And well, everything is inter interdependent with everything else. Now, that's kind of a mind blowing idea. Um, but what's the, what's the use of it? And, you know, Recently, uh, there's kind of this um, uh, fascinating Dharma teacher, uh, Rob Bourbier. I've been uh, consuming a lot of his lectures. He has this book called Seeing That Freeze. And one of the things that he talks about is how, in a sense, you can interpret insight practice uh, as opposed to, for example, like concentration practice or morality practice, you know, just insight practice in, in the Buddhist meditation as basically ways of seeing the world that reduce suffering that diminish the dukkha, uh, the, the, the unpleasant qualities of experience. Uh, so for example, like being hyper, hyper aware or like being in the moment or 
perceiving things as like empty of inherent existence. When do you apply those ways of seeing to even like, you know, unpleasant low level body sensations for a number of people in a number of circumstances, it can have a great reduction in their suffering. Now, it doesn't always work. And it's really interesting to see, like, why, why does it work and under what circumstances does it work? But uh, as kind of like as a general frame, I, I really like it. You know, it's very, very pragmatic. It's kind of like, oh, these deep, quote unquote, esoteric views of the world, you know, interdependence and, uh, you know, dependent origination and uh, emptiness and all of that stuff. Um, ultimately, you know, they're not necessarily uh, useful because they're fundamentally true. Maybe, you know, as Buddha might say, like it's unknowable <laughs> ultimately, but internalizing those ways of seeing the world and your experience lessens the suffering, allows you to kind of like drop a lot of baggage that uh, carries around and causes dissonances internally and kind of like cleanse your experience. And I think a, a powerful experiences of Indra's web well, it actually depends on how you interpret them, because there's also a kind of a, a spiritual materialism um, risk of it. Like if you experience like a mind blowing like meditation or LSD state of, you know, everything reflecting everything else. And you think like, oh, my gosh, I'm enlightened and like I'm one with everything. And like kind of like now maybe you have even more baggage because you kind of have like this self-conception uh, that arose out of that. But there's also, you know, kind of the flip side, which is like maybe actually understanding the dependence of everything with everything else allows you to lessen the amount of fabrications that you uh, essentially engage with, especially mindless fabrications, because in a sense, you you recognize their empty essence and their co-arising with everything else. And in a sense, you can treat them by modifying the conditions to give rise to them. A anyway, so uh, Indra's Web, not only is it a mind blowing experience, it's also potentially like very pragmatically useful in that it might lessen your suffering to, to some extent. Uh, now, importantly too, I think it's, it's very valuable to study as an experience itself. And, uh, you know, like different experiences have like different degrees of like how much they are like Indra's uh, net. Um, now, because, you know, at QRI, we essentially assume indirect realism about perception uh basically yeah when you're having like an experience of indra's web i don't think you're literally you know contacting the rest of the cosmos and seeing how everything reflects everything else i think what's going on is you're instantiating a state of consciousness that essentially has this fascinating property that every part of that state of consciousness in some tricky but non-trivial and very real sense is actually reflecting every other part of the experience and that is what I will explain with the free energy principle. So exciting, isn't it? <laughs> I, I should also remark that uh, because of the symmetry theory of valence, I mean, most of the intra, intrasnet kind of experiences tend to be pretty fractal and like highly detailed, but above all, very consonant and very symmetrical. So they tend to be extremely blissful. So again, a lot of people may experience intrasnet and uh, kind of like be fascinated by it but not recognizing where the valence comes from. You know, they may think that the valence comes from literally becoming embedded into the fabric of reality. But, you know, that's kind of a tyranny of the intentional object. It's kind of like, uh, in a sense, it's like reading too much into the intentional content of the experience, I, I would say. Rather, what I would kind of advise you to do is to pay attention to 
the way in which those patterns are either consonant or dissonant with one another. And the claim is that, you know, blissful Indra's net experiences, for the most part, will basically be hyper harmonious. There's going to be hyper harmony. They're going to be minimizing dissonance in a, in a very, very deep way. So, <laughs> so that's the, the quality of the day. Uh, highly recommended. Uh, you can get it with meditation. It's very common on DMT, as we'll talk about. Uh, and it may be freeing in some, some deep sense that I think is very valuable. Um, okay, so now let's get on to the topic of the day, which is uh, the free energy principle more concretely. And uh, there's a couple things to say, you know, I mean, first of all, like Carl Friesen's free energy principle and predictive coding as a, you know, paradigm, um, which are slightly different things. And the free energy principle can derive the predictive coding and maybe not the other way around, but they're very interrelated and they're part of a, the lineages of QRI. So basically we have now 10 lineages uh, that basically we draw a lot of inspiration and theoretical frameworks from uh, lenses that we use to understand the world. And we also have our own lenses, for example, neural annealing and the symmetry theory of valence and a bunch of other stuff <laughs> like the tyranny of the intentional object and so on, um, which are ours. I mean, we've been developing them for the last, I don't know, seven years or so. Uh, it's been a big effort and uh, hopefully <laughs> we will actually be able to you know, present all of that in a very formal fashion, all of those developments with their predictions and testing those predictions and so on. But yeah, I mean, QRI doesn't exist in a vacuum. It very, very much exists in the context that these other lineages generate and a very important lineage oh, they're all very important so <laughs> one of those lineages is a free energy principle um so it's very important for qri i i i would also mention that um uh you know quentin frerix uh you know the the the, the lead engineer at uh, at qri uh, actually presented about neural annealing to carl Friesen and his lab and, uh, you know, we got a lot of really interesting feedback, mostly extremely positive feedback, uh, very encouraging. And basically they were suggesting that we publish a particular version of what we were working on. And, uh, and um, so th th that is, you know, in the works and uh, I'm very excited about that. Okay, so let's get into the actual content of it. Okay, so the free energy principle is one of those kind of like really high level, cool ideas that in a sense as you munch on it, you start to see it everywhere. And I would compare it with like a couple other kind of things in that kind of category or like very high level interpretations of reality that make you reinterpret everything kind of like, like gives you a completely new lens on reality. One of them, for example, is uh, evolution. You know, this idea that whenever you have um, reproduction with selection and variation, you will have basically the, the ingredients for evolution. Now, that is a fascinating, you know, clever idea, kind of like synthesizing evolution to just those three principles. And it, when you have those three principles, you will start seeing evolution everywhere. You know, not only biological evolution, but like all over the place, you know, in, in uh, Conway, Conway's game, game of Life, in, you know, fundamental particles, in it will show up everywhere. Um, but you can maybe even distill it further. You know, you can say like, well, that's maybe a special case of something more deep. So what could be that, 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 that thing that is uh, kind of like even deeper? Well, maybe it is the survival of the stable. <laughs> and the survival of the stable is kind of this meta principle, right? That like from it, 
you can essentially derive, you know, the three principles of evolution. And it's kind of like a, a deeper, deeper truth, you know, that like, yes, sure, you, there's like biological organisms and all that. But, you know, if a rock is really stable, you know, it will be here. It will be around like it, if it has like mechanisms to continue to exist. You know, that's what exists. What exists is what is good at being stable <laughs> in some in some way you know something could be very variable it could be a dynamic system but maybe construed as the state space of the entire system that is a very stable construct you know and i would say that yeah biological organisms are like that they're very dynamic but in some sense they do carry some stable kind of a metadata and and that is what is actually you know is immortal you know our genes are immortal over the generations even if the individual isn't you know and in that sense survival of the stable is kind of a, a meta principle i would also say you know you know bayesian epistemology is like maybe one of these like pretty pretty high level concepts that allows you to reinterpret so many things that like for example like once you understand that hey the brain is receiving information from its environment in a time series fashion i mean there's massive parallelism but there's also time you know we're embedded in time so the information that we get is that happens over time. It's time series. And whenever you have kind of like that data structure and you're trying to minimize, you know, prediction errors, it follows from math <laughs> that you're going to be doing Bayesian inference. And there's no way around it. I mean, that's just a hard constraint. And it doesn't matter if the brain is made of like neurons or, you know, it's made of like <laughs> honey and, and bees or, you know, if it's made of the population of China or whatnot, like, if it's making accurate predictions about time series data structures, it is going to be, you know, making Bayesian inference. You know, that's that's just a super hard constraint. Now, Bayesian inference is something that lives at the computational level. You still need to dig deeper into the algorithmic and that implementation level, as I've talked about in other videos. Go to the digital uh, digital sentience video for a deep discussion about this. But yeah, in a sense, computational level. Uh, doesn't really tell you the full story, but it is a constraint. You know, it's kind of a boundary condition upon which everything else has to be fit. And for sure, you know, nervous systems do Bayesian inference, period. You know, that's, <laughs> that's a hard constraint. They have to be. <laughs> Otherwise, they wouldn't actually be able to make accurate predictions. Um, now, the free energy principle, some could even think kind of brings together all of these high level paradigms maybe into like an even bigger higher level paradigm which is which is crazy and uh you know at qri we have a lot of respect in general for thinkers who are what mike calls one true ontologists you know who who kind of like take one principle or one set of ideas and 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 try to basically apply it to all of reality and and see how far that goes and okay, maybe it doesn't apply to all of reality, but in the process of trying to apply it everywhere, you discover a lot of things. And you may be able to massively compress a lot of, you know, crazy, highly detailed information of reality with just one, one principle. And the free energy principle may do that. Uh, so briefly stated, and I'll go into like more detail. Uh, essentially, it says that any dynamic system that is actually capable of surviving is actually able to sustain itself must be able to in a sense minimize the entropy is receiving from its environment right so uh you have like a <laughs> a little cat and uh, uh if it's kind of a just always going towards you know the absolutely most chaotic environments possible 
uh, it's going to die. You know, like it's going to go to the oven or it's going to go, I don't know, bad images. But uh, the point is that like, if you're like maximizing chaos, that chaos is going to eat you. Yeah, so basically it's going to shake you apart. Uh, so systems that actually do survive, that actually are stable, as I was talking about, as in this, like, this generator for the you know, uh, theory of evolution, are basically those that are able to minimize the amount of entropy, um, unexpected entropy that the environment basically imposes on, on them. And from that, through a chain of inferences, you can arrive at the implication that dynamic systems that survive in the universe have to, on some level, have an internal model or representation of their environment such that they can anticipate what is going to happen to them given the particular input that they are receiving and uh, basically avoid states of very high entropy as a consequence. So um, it's kind of crazy, right? Like. The, the thing is like this may apply to a lot of like systems that are you know counterintuitive like you know one thing is uh is the brain where like okay yeah, we kind of intuitively intuitively understand that yes we do have kind of an inner model of the of the environment uh, but this may also apply to other things like you know like a a, a whirl uh on, on on water or or like a tornado or like other other dynamic systems like that you know convection currents and things like that that like implicitly you know maybe not explicitly i'm not meaning that saying that convention currents actually contain kind of like a, a picture of their environment inside them. But implicitly, they must be doing some, some level of uh, computational processing that is, in a sense, uh, making them maximally adapted to their environment. And uh, now there's like kind of various schools within, you know, the free energy principle literature of like, okay, are, are the, the, the representations uh, explicit or implicit? And like, maybe that depends on the particular system that we're talking about. And, you know, I, th I think like most people would generally agree that like, at least the brain is making explicit representations. So it's not, you know, we're not just convection currents. So like there's uh, something more explicitly computational going on. Uh, but at the same time, it, it must be satisfying kind of this principle that um, if it's going to survive, it, it has to actually be able to predict this environment. Uh, now, the, the, the actual term um, uh, free energy is an information theoretic construct. Uh, so it's not a physical construct. It's an information theoretical construct that bounds evidence for a model of data. So here's the thing. Like, if you had complete information about the world and uh, the inner latent states, basically the, the latent parameters that give, ri give us rise to, to what's happening in the world, um, you could, in a sense, like compute how surprising a particular set of input is. And in that sense, like we would actually be talking about the surprise minimization principle as opposed to the free energy principle. So why are we talking about the free energy principle instead? And what is this free energy? <laughs> well, it's an information theoretical construct. It's not free, it's not energy in the physical sense, although as I'll mention in a moment, there might be an isomorphism in some circumstances. But uh, free energy appears basically in machine learning and statistics. You know, I have like this book, for example, of uh, deep learning. And, uh, you know, in page uh, 625, you have this definition of variational free energy, uh, which is essentially um, the point is that, yeah, I think like here is the var variational free energy. And essentially the, the point is that, um, this provides an 
upper bound to how surprising the stimuli is given your generative model of the world. I know these are these are a lot of words and uh, you know to do justice to this uh, topic it would take many hours and actually a detailed presentation with uh, definitions and all the math in there but uh, what, what you have to know right now is that you know the like the variational free energy is an upper bound on the true surprise that uh, that a particular stimuli is generating um, and surprise here means that basically the model says that these are very unlikely events so uh, there's information theory construct like the negative of the log surprise basically provides kind of this uh, 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 total surprisal of the stimuli and that is what you should be minimizing you don't have access to that it's intractable so instead what you can do is try to minimize free energy which is an upper bound that is tractable and is computable and is essentially something that yeah in machine learning is used routinely uh, to to basically uh, optimize uh, inferential learning in probabilistic graphical models. Again, apologies for all of the all of the jargon. Uh, what you have to what you have to get is that uh, this is a clever and tractable way of minimizing how surprising the stimuli are from the environment. Um, uh, there's a couple of things to mention here. Is like, okay, if somebody might claim that uh, if you're minimizing surprise, why don't you just go to a dark room? That's kind of the quote-unquote dark room uh, interpretation. Well, uh, yeah, because you know, if you're in a dark room, everything is infinitely predictable. You know, like you know exactly what you're going to to be getting, uh, and that in principle should you know make you feel great because you're minimizing the prediction errors that you're getting. Well, not quite, because actually the model that we have of the world is dynamic and the things that are expected in that model are sequences of events um, so actually there's no kind of like you know local maxima that is kind of like oh you know this homogeneous perfectly you know symmetrical state is like you know maximally expected you know because your model actually goes against it it, it actually says, no, like that would be very unexpected. You know, you don't expect to wake up in the morning <laughs> and just see nothing and have no sensor input. That's an incredibly surprising state, right? So actually going into dark room and becoming super thirsty and not eating and so on, that's a drastically increases your surprise and your free energy. <laughs> so actually, in a sense, like minimizing free energy does entail kind of like doing a lot of very, very simple, quotidian, like normal everyday things that in a sense restrict the range of states that you find in because, and that's an important implication too, uh, you're trying to minimize the entropy of the uh, density of, uh, of states that you can, uh, you can inhabit internally because that in a sense uh, will maximize your chances of continuing to exist, exist indefinitely. And, uh, and uh, yeah, I mean, as a consequence, yes, if you all of a sudden started find yourself in a dark room maybe on a low level you could think that's you know very very uh there's no prediction errors because it's constant at the same time you will be making the inference that you're probably in huge danger <laughs> so in that sense yes actually it doesn't minimize free energy the other fascinating thing about this is um active inference that in a sense there's two ways in which you can minimize the free energy a you can change your model you know, if you're getting something very, very surprising, uh, in order to minimize the free energy that that is generating, you can change your model 
such that what you're experiencing now becomes less surprising. And that's one way. Um, but uh, we also require uh, basically a balance between the accuracy and the complexity of the model because you, you shouldn't overfit. So basically there's only so far you uh, basically a free energy minimizing system will be willing to, in a sense, adjust its model to the immediate uh, immediate information because it's also taking into account all of the previous information. And like, you know, that, that shouldn't be discarded if it's actually an embodied entity is going to survive. You know, new information could be garbage. So like you, you really can't update too heavily on it. And uh, also that gives, uh, you know, brings us to the topic of uh, the precision on the high level priors of the model, which is that, yes, I mean, like um, very surprising things may not actually uh, be warrant uh, deeply updating the model precisely because you have way too much evidence in the past that like, yeah, most likely maybe the input that you're getting is like spurious or something. And you can maybe as a constant, you know, spin up an additional model that is about like, okay, what is the probability that data is noisy or faulty? And like, then you start to model under what circumstances data becomes faulty. And that becomes the way in which you minimize free energy, not just instantly updating your model. Um, and the other thing though, is that um, it will be um, the other way of minimizing free energy is to actually act on the world such that you actually make the inputs later on more expected. So that's kind of like, yeah, basically you're like close to a hot stub or like, you know, I, I don't know, like a, a very, very chaotic bar where there's like about to, you know, a bar fight is about to, to be, to break. And like, there's a bunch of drunk people. And it's very chaotic. You know, one, that's just going to generate a ton of, you know, free energy for you, <laughs> uh, for you to minimize it to something you can do is kind of like start walking and getting out of the bar and you will be outside. It's going to be a way more predictable environment. So <laughs> there you go, you know, like action. Onwards, you know, that can also be a method to, to reduce the uh, free energy. And so in the end, what you get with this theory is kind of this beautiful interpretation of, you know, dynamic systems that survive, including humans, that they will be kind of like in a, in a balanced way, uh, modifying their internal models and also acting on the world so that there's fewer prediction errors. And that as a consequence, you know, what we are doing right now is kind of a, doing that implicitly on some level, you know. Uh, another thing to mention is this concept of the Markov blanket, uh, which is basically in probabilistic graphical models. Um, you should look that up if you're curious. Uh, basically, you can define this notion of a barrier between an inside and an outside, which is basically um, for a given set of nodes, you can look at all of the nodes that in a sense, if you were to, to kind of like uh, 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 fix them, they would, in a sense, like lock in the information that the internal nodes can get from their environment. In a way, it's kind of like the Markov blanket is the outer shell of a particular set of probabilistic graphical models nodes. And, uh, and in that sense, they generate an inside and an outside. And what the free energy principle will entail is that whenever you have a Markov blanket and, you know, those are the, and it's modeling a, a dynamic system, it will be the case that the free energy principle will apply for that Markov blanket and, you know, in actual something like, you know, Bayesian predictive coding models where you have a, a hierarchy of um, kind of like models that go from 
uh, very low kind of like sensory data to like very high level kind of like notions of the self and so on. That in a sense, there's going to be this kind of quasi concentric shells uh, configuration where each of the kind of layers is going to try to predict and anticipate and modify the one right underneath. And in a sense, the process of model building and world building of creating the, the world simulation that you inhabit in this paradigm is what arises out of the kind of like tug, tug of war or competition between all of these various shells trying to predict each other. And the, the end result of that is a hierarchical model that in a sense encodes information about the world in a uh, more and more refined way and uh, 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 more and more abstract way as you go, go in. Now, of course, there's a huge debate on like whether a model like that actually fits what you know what's going on in the brain. Of course, there's like some degree to which you can model um, uh, the layers of the cortex, for example, in kind of like this hierarchical way, you know, for V and then like V1, V2, and so on. At the same time, the brain is like really interconnected, you know, and there's like connections between layer one and layer five, and and it's kind of like very very mixed up in a sense. So. Uh, identifying the mark of blankets of the neural networks of the brain is not as easy uh, as kind of like just dividing into layers. Uh, there's more complication to it. And also, you know, down the line, <laughs> you know, at QRI, we actually, you know, believe that consciousness is a holistic field behavior, um, uh, or rather is a, is, is a, utilizes holistic field behavior. And that's the reason why it was uh, selected by natural selection. Um, and recruited by natural selection for computation. So actually consciousness might be inherently extremely interconnected by its very nature. And so within a moment of experience, there may actually not be like a, an, an easy or even conceivably possible way of generating Markov blankets. So that might be kind of a something that, you know, runs deep against some of the core assumptions of the free energy principle. At the same time, I do think that it is quite possible um, to... Uh, make approximate Marco blankets within your your world simulation, and that alone, you know, allows us to basically use the free energy principle as a lens. We we, we will recognize that it's an imperfect lens because these are part kind of imperfect Marco blankets. There's leakage of information between the inside and an outside, but uh, it's gonna be good. It can be still be insightful. Okay. So that's that. That's uh, the free energy principle. So now let's go to apply it to psychedelics. And I mean, the very first thing I'll mention is uh, uh, Rebus, which is reduced the beliefs under uh, psychedelics, uh, a paper by Robin Carhart Harris and Carl Friston. And, uh, and it's fascinating. Basically, what they argue is that um, the net effect of psychedelics in your world model is weakening the precision of the high-level priors, uh, meaning that like these very high-level priors, very kind of like central, uh, you know, innermost layers of the mark of blankets, that those in a sense become uh, less strong. They don't impose on all of the other layers as much. They're kind of like weaker, they're reduced. <laughs> and, uh, and as such, it allows bottom-up information to propagate across the hierarchy and give rise to bigger belief updates. So that's that's a very, very big, fascinating idea. And then they justify it based on neurophysiology. In particular, they, they, they you know, examine the hypothesis that deep 
pyramidal neurons are encoding these very high-level priors and that the FIRST2A receptor um, basically uh, is a way in which these neurons can be sensitized. And because they basically can receive uh, stimulation from like lower layers of the hierarchy, um, when they are sensitized, that as an implication gives rise to basically a more straightforward information propagation between the lower layers and the higher la layers. And well, there's a bunch of speculation also on like, okay, maybe uh, the way the, the priors are implemented are through basically uh, patterns of synchrony in those like top layer neurons. And that, you know, this kind of sensitization and, and bottom-up information propagation gives rise to basically the, the desynchronization of them. So you get a kind of like, rather than a coherent story, kind of a, imparting, you know, a, a synchronized top-level prior is kind of like competing, you know, maybe patterns of synchrony. Uh, they're kind of like all of them trying to kind of like make sense of the world and to make sense of each other. And uh, it's kind of like an anarchy. I mean, the Robin Carhead Harris talks about it as the uh, anarchic brain that now you have kind of all of these different, yeah, basically clusters and components of the model that are in a sense, yeah, giving rise to bottom-up updates on the belief network. Um, and these, you know, in terms of aesthetics of science, this is pretty cool. Uh, uh, there's this fascinating book uh, by Paul uh, Feyerabend. I don't know how to pronounce his name, but um, uh, it's called Against Method. And he's talking about, yeah, basically this uh, uh, idyllic picture of the scientific method as a recipe that you just follow that, yeah, that doesn't work. And a, a really good quip that comes from that book is this idea that facts dictate theory as much as theory di dictates facts or maybe put the other way for a stronger effect you know theory dictates what facts are as much as the facts dictate what theory is so <laughs> in a sense like this is why like paradigms take such a long time to advance in science you know because like uh whenever a paradigm explains a lot of information which usually yeah i mean good scientific paradigms will do that and you bring up you know a new study or something that like provides counter evidence uh, to it, like a strong, strong counter uh, evidence to it, the typical response is to basically reinterpret those facts in order for them to fit the theory, <laughs> rather than like re-examine the theory, which is a much bigger enterprise to do. <laughs> and plus there's vested interest in academia and so on, which I'm not going to get <laughs> into that. But yeah, I mean, basically, um, uh, facts dictate theory as much as the theory dictate, dictates facts. And, um, and in a sense, with Rebus, the really cool thing, right, is like you can imagine that happening in your own brain, that you are um, interpreting the world through your narrow lenses. And maybe, you know, by the age of 30, those narrow lenses are pretty crystallized. And like if they're bad models of the world, like uh, it might be good to, in a sense, kind of revise them and allow, you know, low level prediction errors to actually propagate all the way upwards so that you update your model. And that's kind of like the, the, the ideal use in therapy of psychedelics, given that particular reading on what psychedelics do, which is in a sense, you allow people to kind of get unstuck, uh, prevent the default mode network or whatever you know, story we might want to tell here uh, from just imposing its high level priors with very high precision everywhere. 
and instead be open to actually update its uh, its priors based on new information, even if it's information you have stored inside. So like in Re the Rebus paper, they also talk about like, it's not only kind of prediction errors from the environment, it's also kind of like sensitizing to like oscillations in the limbic system, you know? So like emotions that maybe you, you didn't want to face, like all of a sudden um, things that were like off about certain situations and so on, and you were in denial about because your high level priors made it difficult for you to perceive them all of a sudden like become readable they they propagate in the network and like you know presumably that could have like a lot of like therapeutic benefits in a lot of circumstances now rebus is cool and i think it explains a lot but <laughs> i actually think it's uh very narrow in 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 a sense it's like it's it's not going into the actually super crazy insane stuff that does happen on psychedelics i mean like hyperbolic geometry of dmt experiences type stuff you know like world sheet bending and and 3d hyperbolic spaces and um uh hyperbolic resonant modes and you know space groups uh, appearing in your in your visual field like there's a lot of stuff that like reduce you know beliefs under psychedelics they don't touch you know that's not like what they're trying to explain you know but maybe if we pay attention to those you know crazy aspects of psychedelics maybe we can still apply the free energy principle and get some good insights which is what i'm about to do i'll i'll, I'll mention i guess about rebus uh, a, a couple final things which is that um uh, there's also this kind of fun commentary and, and great paper by uh, adam saffron uh, called a Cebus, which is like strengths uh, beliefs under psychedelics. And basically, yeah, he makes the, the point that like, actually a lot of things that happen on psychedelics are more kind of towards the strengthening of beliefs as opposed to weakening of beliefs. And like a lot of, you know, like side effects of psychedelics is like believing weird stuff. So what's going on there? And like, he kind of like talks about like, you know, maybe yes, psychedelics do weaken kind of this, uh, or in a sense, sensitize, you know, top level priors uh, to prediction errors, but also they may strengthen like medium level priors and that might give rise to kind of like particular hallucinations and expectations about the input that, okay, like maybe, um, uh, you, you know, the deep dream paradigm that like the, something that kind of looks like a dog all of a sudden congeals into a dog. So that kind of feels like you're imposing your high level model into the world, right? So it's the Rebus story doesn't make sense of everything really. Uh, but and also it doesn't seem very parsimonious to say like Rebus and then also Cebus, but like so like the way like there's kind of these competing forces and maybe the story is pretty complicated. Um, I would also point to people to kind of a, a Neil Seth's lab and and the work of uh, Michael Schartner, uh, Scharther. Uh, I don't know how to pronounce his surname. Apologies, uh, but yeah, they're doing like fascinating work in basically creating biologically plausible neural network architectures and then kind of uh, disrupting them and using generative models that come from them. And they get essentially crazy things like kind of a generalized and more biologically plausible version of deep dream. Uh, and I think that's fascinating research and it's great. Uh, and again, you know, the literature is still waiting for kind of a, a grand unification that makes sense of Rebus and Cebus and, you know, these like predictive coding paradigms and, and so on. But, <laughs> you know, like, for a theory to be adequate, it actually, uh, you know, there's this criteria of evidential uh, um, uh, adequacy. Meaning that not only do you need to explain, you know, the deep dream effects on psychedelics and, you know, the, the updates of beliefs that, that you experience, 
you also need to explain machine elves. You also need to explain like tracer phenomenology and enhance the valence and the crazy harmony that happens in some of those states and the annealing effects and, <laughs> and, and the dissolution of the self into the rest of the cosmos and resonance between people. There's a ton to explain. I mean, it's very similar to how like some theories of consciousness, uh, for example, claim to have an answer you know, to consciousness. And yet, if you read into them, you recognize that they're not even addressing the real problem of consciousness, which is, you know, any scientific theory of consciousness must be able to explain A, the existence of consciousness, B, the causal properties of consciousness. Why was it recruited by natural selection? You know, C, the binding problem. How is it possible that we experience unified moments of experience, even though neurons are spatially distributed? You know, and, and see, it must be able to explain the full range of qualia patterns. What is the periodic table of possible qualia values and patterns and the way in which they can be interrelated with one another? What patterns can be bound with one another? All of that. All of that. You need to explain all of that. <laughs> and as far as I can tell, well, Rebus definitely doesn't go that far. The free energy principle, if you have a certain mind, and in particular, if you're very dismissive, of like qualia or something like that. I think you can kind of squint really hard and kind of, you know, get a glimpse of the free energy principle as a theory of consciousness. <laughs> if you squint really hard, the free energy principle looks like a theory of consciousness. I would claim, no, it's a theory of dynamic systems. It's not addressing consciousness directly, but <laughs> given that a conscious system is a dynamic system, you will be seeing a lot of free energy principle um, uh, effects happen in a conscious system. I hope that that difference makes sense. It's uh, very tricky what I just said. So I'm not saying you can explain consciousness with the free energy principle. You can't. You know, free energy principle is not a theory of consciousness. But because consciousness is a complex dynamic system, you will be able to find free energy principle appear in it all over the place. Okay, so it's kind of like flipping it, you know, 180 degrees in a sense, while still highly valuing the free energy principle. It's just very important to note it's not a theory of consciousness. Okay, I'm repeating myself. Let's get into the three super cool new applications of the free energy principle to consciousness. Uh, excuse me one second. <coughs> so, um, first of all, the free energy principle is a computational theory. It's, you know, it's dealing with probabilistic graphical models. It's something very natural in machine learning. It's not a, a theory of physics, although it's trying to connect those principles with physics. Um, what we're doing at QRI is actually getting an implementation level account of what the brain is doing. And based on that implementation, inferring what kind of algorithms can exist. And in that, in that sense, you know, the computational level account that I was describing uh, you know, Bayesian brain and so on. Those are hard constraints on the computational side. We're exploring the implementation level and they will meet in the middle, which is like given the implementation, what algorithms are possible and likely and given the computational side, basically what algorithms are necessary. So with that is kind of, you know, forward chaining and back chaining and hopefully we get a, a good insight in the middle. So I'll explain that in a second. So we model uh, a moment of experience as a resonance network. And again, 
this is not a full theory of consciousness, as I explained, but it does address in particular the binding problem, at least at a functional level, that when you have a resonance network um, where basically each of the nodes is uh, a, a metronome, it could be a more than one dimension metronome. So basically it could be, for example, like a, uh, a square that has like various vibrational modes. And in that way, uh, basically resonance uh, can be transitive in the sense of like locking the system into a coherent state, but the frequencies of resonance don't need to be transitive between the nodes. So like if node A is in resonance with B and B is in C, A and C don't need to be in resonance with one another. They're only in a sense implicitly um, uh, influencing each other by their influence on C, uh, on B. But on, on their own, in a sense, they are not intrinsically in resonance with one another. So there's kind of, yeah, this fascinating aspect of the non-transitivity of this uh, resonance, of the frequencies of resonance. Um, and what we're claiming is that what the brain is fundamentally doing is trying to minimize dissonance. Now, from that, I would claim we can derive the free energy principle uh, as kind of an implication of this implementation. And again, it's not that the free energy principle is you know, fundamentally explaining that, you know, how consciousness is working here. Rather, is that this particular implementation naturally gives rise to a free energy uh, reading. And, 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 and uh, this is as follows. So essentially, um, in this system, uh, the layers of the system, basically, when they are in dissonance with one another, that will encode a prediction error. That in a sense, to make an accurate prediction entails that one layer can essentially synchronize with the components of the layer below. And that when that doesn't happen, and in a sense, a layer is kind of like propagating information that the addition, the further a higher layer is not predicting, that like that will generate an out of phase interaction. And that would be an instance of dissonance. Okay, so that's one, one component. And second, there might be an inherent complexity cost when you have a very complex model in that complex models tend to give rise to dissonance because there's a lot of interrelationships. So um, in a sense, in the balance, you know, of trying to minimize dissonance, that, that gives rise to a balance between model complexity and prediction errors. And of course, like the, the, the weight on either could be a kind of a something programmable, like maybe by genetics or like the, the particular, particular details of the resonance network. But the point is that some of those configurations will be very adaptive because they will hit precisely that balance of, in a sense, minimizing the, the, the range of internal possible states and minimizing that entropy, while at the same time minimizing the entropy that, you know, comes from the environment because it's making correct predictions. And of course, this would happen also recursively in each of the layers, uh, each of the concentric shells of the Markov blanket, so to speak. And uh, uh, the, the, the fascinating thing here is that we can, in a sense, interpret something like annealing, neural annealing, the, the paradigm we've talked about. Mike Johnson has an article about it as a way of getting out of a local minima of dissonance that you're kind of like stuck in a given configuration. Well, with neural annealing, essentially, you inject a ton of energy into the system and the systems in that elevated higher energy state. Basically, the barrier for uh, exploring different states goes down. In a sense, it's kind of like weakens the constraints and it allows us to basically 
uh, as it cools down to settle in a much less dissonant configuration. And as a consequence, that process might give rise to actually just generally better predictions about the environment. It, it doesn't necessarily, you know, not always, because it could anneal something that is just too simple. You know, like maybe with the wrong dose in the wrong set and setting, it may anneal something that is just way too simple. And for example, something like 5-MeO DMT may, may just generate like such levels of hypercoherence, global hypercoherence, that all the information gets lost and basically it's super symmetrical state. Basically, you anneal to a model of the world where the expected thing is actually kind of the dark room. It's basically this infinite void. <laughs> and of course, the infinite void, the first time you experience it, is incredibly surprising. <laughs> but the more you experience the infinite void, the more natural it feels, the more kind of ground, ba you know, basement reality type of experience. But you can, you can read it as essentially like an annealing process that is updating your model of the world, such that like now minimizing free energy requires you to take into account the existence of the void, right? So it's, anyway, that's, that's a cool, cool lens here. Uh, whereas, you know, in kind of a, the rebus paradigm, annealing, and they talk about annealing, uh, simulated annealing, has much more to do with things such as like message passing and uh, um, and belief propagation uh, as kind of like algorithms in probabilistic graphical models um, that in a sense, when you uh, weaken the constraints there, you can get an annealing effect. And as you strengthen the constraints again, uh, you may end up actually with a more accurate model. Now, uh, in, a, in a recent talk, uh, the Oxford uh, Psychedelic Society uh, I basically hypothesized, and this is also comes from uh, some conversations with uh, uh, Enrique Bojorquez, uh, uh, a volunteer at QRI, that, yeah, basically there might be a very deep duality here between actually what is happening in the resonance network and what is happening in the belief network. And that, for example, uh, when you experience information you don't like, it literally feels dissonant. Like literally cognitive dissonance would be actual physical dissonance going on in the brain. And we're actually interested at QRI to test this. And we think it's feasible to actually, <laughs> to actually, you know, publish a paper about like cognitive dissonance is physiological dissonance. <laughs> um, yeah. And, uh, and also, you know, like resisting information uh, kind of has this embodied, you know, component that you're kind of like, in a sense, like preventing the, the information from propagating. Um, and for example, practices of equanimity, where you like learn to relax deeply and just embrace whatever happens. In a sense, what you're doing there, it's uh, you're also, because of the duality, you're allowing information to propagate. You're not being in denial, so to speak. So basically, yeah, patterns of ten, even muscular tension would basically have implications in how you're dealing with information in the belief network. So anyway, that, this is a super rich, super rich uh, connection here. So that's number one <laughs> of the free energy principle and psychedelics QRI themed connections. The, the second one is, well, this comes from, yeah, basically uh, it's kind of a synthesis of uh, Mike's uh, symmetry theory of homeostatic regulation and the hyperbolic geometry of DMT experiences. So uh, I'll explain first, yeah, basically uh, Mike hypothesizes that in a sense, like very symmetrical you know, harmonics in the nervous system are kind of signals of health because that in a sense allows you to do a very quick diagnosis. In a sense, whenever there is symmetry breaking, that usually will suggest or indicate there is damage. 
and you may not be able to kind of like sequentially examine every aspect, you know, every part of your body and compare it with an inner template, like that might be computationally intractable. But detecting deviations from symmetry might be very straightforward in sort of kind of like a Fourier analysis uh, uh, decomposition. So like you take the, you know, how harmonious the, the, the Fourier, anal version, the Fourier uh, analysis is, and that will tell you basically how symmetrical the state is. Uh, how much is deviating from its homeostasis. And so that's a super deep idea. And in a sense, it's kind of like algorithmic level account that can be hooked up to the free energy principle and makes a lot of sense. Um, and then there's also in the, in the hyperbolic geometry of DMT experiences, I talked about how DMT energizes, literally energizes your experience and basically the way in which energy, and here I'm talking about physical energy, of course, with kind of like panpsychist uh, uh, background assumption that actually, you know, fields of uh, physics or fields of qualia, which you don't need to buy into for this to make sense. You could also talk about total energy as maybe kind of average neural activity or like intensity of electric potential or something like that. But yeah, basically um, what happens is that on DMT, you have higher energy experiences and this manifests as very, very bright colors or very curved world sheet. Basically, the depth map of your experience can become very, very, very curved. Uh, it could also be felt in the form of super intense high energy resonance or, for example, uh, even even something like a very loud sound. And basically on DMT, what will be happening is that the energy is going to be chaotically transitioning from one modality to another. And sometimes it may concentrate. I mean, like there are reports of people saying like, yeah, and then all of a sudden the energy concentrated in my visual field and I experienced the most intense blue I could possibly experience ever. And like, okay, yeah, that's one solution, one high energy configuration. For the most part, most of the aspects of a DMT experience is going to be kind of a, uh, the energy distributed across a bunch of modalities. Um, and, uh, and in addition, I talked about a kind of Bayesian energy sinks. You, you can look it up, you know, 2016 hyperbolic geometry of DMT experiences article where I said that basically what you recognize lowers the energy. So basically you have like this chaotic kind of like crazy patterns and, and you know, excited world sheet. And then you kind of like see the corner of a table and that kind of like becomes a nucleation factor, nucleation point that basically propagates the shape of the table and condenses. And it's in, in a sense kind of a, um, yeah, there's kind of condensation of this excited world sheet into a semantically meaningful shape. And, and um, as a result, the things that actually survive in a DMT state are in a sense, the things that are the highest likelihood, the things that, I mean, given how crazy that is, is like what could possibly make, make this sense. And, uh, and yes, I mean, that will be importing a lot of stuff like narrative, information from previous trips, what you have read online, like, you know, Alan Watts and Terence McKenna, all of that will be kind of these like high level priors that will give rise to condensations of the world sheet. And of course, that is a large extent why I think like there's a lot of a ton of confirmation bias on, on DMT, because essentially what you have learned and what you what you can recognize will condensate as a world sheet. But, you know, it's a fabrication, I, I would claim. It's a fabrication. You're, you're kind of subliminally choosing it because you can also condensate something different. <laughs> but, uh, but it's sometimes difficult to resist because like this, and pl plus there's kind of a, a, a momentum. Like they have like a, 
a momentum of their own, like interpretations on DMT kind of like gather energy and they're very difficult to stop once they get started, which is, yeah, why I think it's very important to basically develop a very, very, very good aesthetic, very high level philosophical aesthetic, such that basically the the things that you recognize in the world sheet are actually beautiful things and, uh, you know, cooperate, cooperate equilibria between the sub agents of your experience. Uh, but uh, uh, to, to kind of like synthesize, you know, Bayesian energy sinks with a symmetry theory of homeostatic regulation, essentially very similar to a soap bubble. The other thing that essentially condenses uh, the energy of the world sheet is symmetrical configurations. So basically in a soap bubble, um, basically any configuration besides this perfectly spherical one, in a sense has potential energy. And if it has potential energy that immediately translates into kinetic energy, makes the ball essentially kind of like bounce, bounce off. And because it's bouncing off, it's interfacing with the gases around it and radiating its energy. So in a sense, a soap bubble radiates its energy until it reaches its local minima of energy, which in this case is actually the global minimum of energy for that particular shape, which is perfect symmetrical spherical configuration. Likewise, on DMT, the shapes that you experience will be local minima of energy because they will be radiating energy to the environment. And yeah, I mean, this has to do with the holistic field behavior and the fact that literally the phenomenal objects in your experience uh, actually kind of uh, radiate uh, waves of energy. And uh, that, that's a topic for another topic. I don't mean waves of energy from, you know, outside kind of reaching at you. It's all in your world model. Like there's a, a, a kind of a uh, internally in your own experience, your world simulation, there's waves of energy that the objects radiate. And there's a lot of super deep stuff about that. Uh, but basically on DMT, objects will do that. They will radiate their energy. And so they will condense into their lowest energy configurations, which for, for the most part will bring up elements of symmetry. And that said, the typical DMT experience is going to be a hybrid of the two. It's essentially going to be something that simultaneously has a lot of symmetries and it has recognizable semantic content because like that just happened to be the way in which energy, physical energy was being minimized. But you see, like this is so deep and so awesome because with these, we have a direct way of linking the free energy principle, which is a computational level account with physical energy minimization as an algorithm in order to minimize prediction errors while also having good model complexity. And this is at the implementation level. So we're starting to get at kind of like a big picture that has answers to all of the levels of analysis of, of Mars levels of analysis. And I, I don't know, it makes me very happy. It's uh, basically the aim of QRI is to have a full stack theory of consciousness, basically all of the levels of analysis and also, you know, a neuroscience philosophy of mind and neurotechnology. And, uh, and I think like, yeah, this kind of deep connections is, is the way forward. Okay. So, and I promised you that I would explain Indra's net with the free energy principle on, on psychedelics and, and meditation. So that's what I will conclude this video with. Uh, so bear with me. <laughs> so you've got to remember, uh, in, in previous videos, I've talked about how, uh, DMT, one way you can model it is as competing patterns of coherence. And in a sense, 
uh, this gives rise to an evolutionary uh, process where like, uh, do you know like our place, like reddit slash, this reddit.com slash r slash place. It was basically this like 1 million by 1 million canvas where yeah people were able to put a, a pixel every, I don't know, 10 minutes or something like that. Uh, so like, obviously you needed to collaborate with others in order to actually paint the, the whole thing. And the dynamics that emerged was, were really cool, right? It's like, oh, like some people were like in the low entropy, let's make everything black or let's make everything white kind of a camp. And others were like, no, let's make a Pikachu <laughs> or let's make the, the flag of, uh, of Australia or, you know, whatever it may be. Uh, but the point is that, yeah, there's kind of like this competition uh, of like patterns and like basically the stronger one goes, the, the more it can signal, the more visible it becomes, the more people it can attract. So basically there's kind of these like the rich gets richer type of dynamics as well. Uh, and then therefore kind of like a power law distribution of like how popular different patterns are. Well, the same on DMT. Essentially one frame uh, with which to analyze DMT is that these competing patterns of coherence is kind of like filling up your experience by basically the contents of your subconscious, what your subconscious can recognize and it, what it finds like emotionally salient. And also kind of like mixing in like the affordances of like highly symmetrical configurations being like energy minimizing configurations. So yeah, in a sense, like the crazy stuff you see on DMT are basically the balance between like the forces of the competing clusters of coherence. And sometimes a cluster of coherence can win. I mean, it can be like really savvy at basically minimizing its free energy. And, uh, and when it does that, you know, you, sometimes you may have kind of like an alien contact experience where the whole trip is kind of like you're standing right next to like a, a lady or like, you know, a, a, a mantis or something. And it's uh, scolding you for something you did or it's praising you or telling you you're going to be the king of the universe or whatever it may be. But basically, it's like telling you a story that is very captivating and being captivating and being consistent with what you know is one of the things that this, you know, quasi entity, you know, emergent, you know, a phenomenon that happens on DMT, that's how they, they, they get you. You know, that's how they, they attract your attention. They basically uh, build things that simplify your model of the world or make things make sense. Um, and that is like very alluring. You know, there's like this feeling of super intelligence. And yes, a DMT state is in some sense uh, super intelligence in, in, in some sense because it is finding at an extremely fast pace connections that you weren't able to find before. And, and uh, that could be computationally very meaningful. At the same time, uh, because of the chaotic nat nature of the state and the coherence across the layers of the hierarchy, there's a lot of forced belief updates. So unfortunately, when you do experience kind of these DMT beings, they kind of like force you to update your beliefs towards them being like real outside of your existence. And you can like, once you understand everything I've talked to you about, you, you will be able to notice this, that basically the way in which that manifests is as literal dissonance. That like, if you rebel against <laughs> the updates that a DNT machine elf is uh, giving you, um, that will feel difficult. It will be uh, like resisting and that resistance will lead to dissonance. It's going to be unpleasant, which is uh, why I think it's so important to, from the very beginning of the DMT experience, always hold the, you know, upmost, most elevated aesthetic that you have such that the evolutionary selection pressures for the patterns give rise to kind of cooperate, cooperate equilibria. 
And when that happens, that gonna give rise to Indrasnet. And what is Indrasnet here? Okay, so we're coming to a close. Everything, everything is kind of like munching together in order to get to this core insight I'm about to deliver to you, which is that the competing clusters of coherence, in order for them to be good at surviving, they must be able to model their environment. And also, they must be as simple as they can be, so that there's not uh, basically chaotic elements within them that will destabilize them and, you know, uh, shake themselves apart, so to speak. So, uh, now imagine that, like, the entire field of experience is kind of like following these principles, following this gradient, uh, and that they are more or less similar and consonant with each other. So when you have those conditions and you can maximize the probability of those conditions by you know, taking DMT in a really good state of mind and holding a really good aesthetic uh, in place, what will happen is that each of the competing clusters of coherence will generate a model of their environment such that when they receive kind of the waves of energy, so to speak, that they can match them with internal waves of energy simultaneously that will reinforce the specific pattern that they are. And as a consequence, um, and because in a sense like fractality and self-similarity is also one way of like minimizing complexity, what can literally happen is that you will have these groups, competing patterns of coherence that each of them literally contains a tiny reflection on every other one uh, scaled downwards so that like uh, basically kind of like corresponds to the appropriate scale and within each of them you will have a smaller one now it's not going to go infinitely there's no space plus you know the frequencies are not infinite you know the frequency has a a, a maximum value so like the the bands of the waves of energy as they they radiate and so on they they, they cannot be like infinitely thin so there's not infinite complexity but there can be several layers of like uh, mutual modeling. And uh, because the simplest configuration is going to be essentially when all of the competing clusters of coherence are identical, uh, <laughs> when you have the conditions set up right, basically the gradient moves towards literally every cluster of coherence being a sort of fractal reflection of every other cluster of coherence and that way they can predict each other perfectly and they don't <laughs> they don't lose their shape they minimize energy they make perfect predictions they're a completely stable state and it's high valence because it's all consonant and uh that's interest net <laughs> so hopefully hopefully you got some of that if not uh, i'm sure we'll talk about this another time and um, I'm sure you can rewatch the video uh, later stage, maybe after taking DMT and experiencing these and, you know, you'll see what I mean. Uh, but anyway, I, just, I was just very excited to share all of this. So uh, I think like to, to conclude, you know, th this is the sort of conversation that I really think, um, you know, there, there really should be a place in the world for it to exist. And I think uh, QRI has a really good chance of being that place where basically uh, constructing the infrastructure and uh, yeah basically we're going to make hires later this year so 
and we're aiming for yeah basically like super smart people uh very value aligned and uh you know if all of these interests you if you have the mathematical background and uh you have like strong technical skills and uh you love philosophy yes i mean please read all of our stuff you know maybe in six months uh we might hire you <laughs> i've got to be honest though there's gonna be a very high bar but i don't know in six months maybe you can get there <laughs> either way though um this is a a, a big movement and a, and a and a larger community so whether you know you're working directly on these projects or not you can you can tag along and uh write blog posts make videos and yes essentially make <laughs> consciousness research super cool uh that's that's the the goal and uh and reduce suffering massively as a consequence um so with that thank you so much infinite bliss and i'll talk to you another time take care have a wonderful wonderful time